From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Over the course of a grueling 18-game SEC schedule, ebbs and flows are likely going to occur. And while the goal is to grow from your wins, so far the men's basketball squad has been forced to take painful lessons through losses. On this week's show, we'll welcome in FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter to discuss the latest struggles for Mike White's team, an impactful transfer for football, a watershed moment for the women's basketball team, and Kyler Murray's dilemma in the PAT. Then, after a rollicking start to the 2019 season, we'll chat with gymnastics coach Jenny Rowland about her young but incredibly talented team that plans to compete for a national championship. But first, basketball's 1-3 in three start to league play can be attributed to a variety of factors, but at the end of the day, the way the games have ended has been pretty consistent. As Florida struggles to hold leads and close games, we began our chat with Chris and Scott by asking what unifying threads are tying the stretch together and how they can get past it. Well, there's a commonality, Adam. It's uh, probably an inability to score in crunch time. Now, having said that, this is a team that uh, has an inability to score over, over the course of the game. And yet, having said that, uh, the Mississippi State game was uh, was one of their better, I thought, offensive displays, even though they only shot 42 percent. They only hit, I believe uh, it was 10. They were 10 of 31 from the three point line compared to Mississippi State, which was 10 of 17. Hmm. It, it, even against Tennessee, they got Florida got open shots. It was not going in. I mean, what's going on with Jalen Hudson is really kind of a um, something that's really, really hard to explain. He had another obviously difficult night at Mississippi State, one for eight overall, one for five. He was on the bench most of the second half. But, I mean, at the end of the game, when you got to have a basket, all right, what are your options? The best option is obviously Kayvon Allen with the ball in his hand. Now it's up to Kayvon Allen to take the shot also. Uh, Andrew Nemhart is a guy who can get his own shot, but he's not necessarily going to make his own shot. He's, his, his shooting percentage is not very good, and he's missing some shots in close. You're not going to dump the ball inside and try to do like a Grant Williams and – get some kind of move down in the low post because, uh, you know, that's not what Kavarius Hayes does. That's not what anybody on this team does. So the offense is very, very limited in what, what kind of options it has. When the game's getting tight, the knees are knocking, and the Gators got to have a basket. So it, it's no different if the game is close or if it's a, a, a nice lead for them because in a couple of those other games, the South Carolina game, the Arkansas game, they blew pretty cushy leads. Uh, coming down the stretch because, uh, you know, that's that's when defenses start to batten down opposing defenses. And Florida's you know defense has been really, really good all season long. And it really let them down at Mississippi State in those last uh, two and a half minutes when they gave up. When Mississippi State hit four of their last five shots and a couple of them, uh, that last shot was just a downhill bunny layup with a late defensive rotation. A guy getting beat on a straight line drive. So they're finding ways to lose games. They hadn't started one and three since the 2000-2001 season. That team happened to go back, come back and win the SEC. I don't know if this team's going to do that. I would doubt it because um, there's some really good teams in the league this year. So uh, Mike White uses the term a lot, searching. 
you got a lot of searching to do, but you, you can only deal with what you have in college basketball. You can't go out and get more players. And when you think about how handcuffed this team is, when Jalen Hudson is shooting 22% and less than 20% from the three-point line, when Keystone can't score uh, and he's in the funk he's in, when you don't have any kind of post-up presence on offense, well, your options are really, really limited, and you, you better guard and you, you better ugly it up and you uh, better get some stops when you have to get stops at the end of the game. Yeah, you have the, the unique perspective of being on the road with these guys. You're at practices. I mean, you're almost everywhere the team is, all their activities. What are you seeing behind the scenes in terms of work that they can do to sort of correct some of these problems? Are there? I know there, there's no you know secret formula, but what are some of the tactics they're trying to reverse some of these trends? Well, I mean, it could start with just doing the kind of things that they're coached to do on a daily basis, whether it's simple hitting defenders on or hitting uh, offensive rebounders and boxing out the right way, uh, spacing, fundamental kind of stuff, um, you know, chin in the ball and keeping uh, the, your man between you and the ball on. It's, it's stuff they work on all the time and it's stuff that, that they've had breakdowns on that they've reinforced in practice. They've had to scale back the offense in a, in a lot of ways because of some of these things that the guys just aren't doing on a basis when the game time comes. Again, limitations – you know, you can get it. Andrew Nemhard stays after practice and shoots all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I give a good example. I mean, you ask what are they doing to improve? I mean, uh, you hear all the time, how come they miss free throws? I mean, the, I believe the, in the in non-conference season, there was 64% from the free throw line. I mean, that's unsustainable over the course of a season. In the SEC, they've upped that to uh, over 70% because they work on it. Um, and it's, it's not because they don't work on it. They've start to put a little more of an emphasis on it, but put an emphasis on something like that and maybe a pressure free throw drill. It's taking away time to do some other things. They only have so much time they can work. Mm-hmm. So uh, guys are in the gym shooting more. Yes. There isn't anything they haven't tried. This is a team that's going to have, have a hard time winning in a hard league. And because of some of the limitations across the board, this is the cards they've been dealt and uh, uh, they're not going to stop trying. I mean, they're one and three. In conference play, it's an 18-game conference season, Adam. It's, it's a very long season. Mm-hmm. A lot can happen good, and a, and a lot can happen the other way. All they can concentrate right now when people talk about, well, they're, gonna, they're not going to make the tournament. they got to win this many games. All, stuff. all they can afford to think about right now is playing Georgia Saturday. Something good has to happen for this team. Um, and, and you know, Georgia's a, Georgia's a team with a new coach in Tom Crean. They're a little more. They're excited about basketball up there. Uh, you know, they're. I don't know what kind of team they are in terms of. You know, they lost Yante Maton, who was a former SEC Player of the Year, but they got they got athletic guys. They they have players. They're certainly capable of beating a team like Florida. Um, so uh, they're going to have to be on point up there and just just play a lot better, make some shots. They're getting open shots. The the offense is is getting them stuff. But um, when you're not making shots, and they talk about this all the time, things you can control is how hard you play and how hard you defend. And when that's your default, if you fall off on that, then stuff like what happened uh, Tuesday night in, in Starkville will happen. You know, I, I don't know that many people want to hear about silver linings right now, but I think one thing that's obvious is the fact that these young players are getting so much experience that in crunch time, Johnson, Locke, Nemhard, those are the guys that are on the floor. I mean, looking long term, that's got to be positive, right? I mean, I'm sure they're learning more right now and gaining experience through these struggles than they would if they, they weren't playing. No doubt. And um, Keontae Johnson, um, Mike White was asked about him, you know, why didn't Keontae Johnson play more? Well, Keontae Johnson 
needs to play harder more often. I mean, he gets in and there, there's defensive breakdowns that point to him a lot of times. Now, he's, he's not the lone culprit, but of the three freshmen, he was he's the one that was getting the least amount of playing time because the other two were starting, obviously. But I tell you what, he was really good in Starkville. And that's why he was on the floor so much in the second half. That's why he was on the floor at the end of the game. But having said all this, with again, when the situation is with Florida's front court, when you got guys that are injured, guys that are under that, guys that are out of shape, that, are, that aren't ready to play, guys that transfer in midseason, you had three freshmen in the game at the end. You had uh, uh, four guys six five and under, and you have Kavarius Hayes, who's very limited offensively. So, what are you going to do at the end of a game when you have to have a basket? What are your options? You have to be pretty darn, darn creative, and how creative can you be with a, with a lineup like that? But give Keontae Johnson credit. He was four for six. He was three for four from the three-point line. He had a tremendous slam dunk coming down the pipe. Need mm-hmm. more of that. 11 points, four rebounds. I uh, believe he had three steals in the game. Um, as long as he's playing hard, okay, he's going to be able to affect the game to Florida's advantage because of his uh, elite athleticism. If he attacks the glass um, on the offensive glass, he has a chance to affect every uh, potential offensive rebound, be it a tip, getting it, just being in the mix somehow. So good for him. And I, I wouldn't be surprised, Adam, if uh, Georgia, you know, he doesn't get his, the first start of his career, which would put Florida's three freshmen um, in the starting lineup for the first time this season. Yeah, we'll see. I know that last week, against Tennessee uh, before the starting lineup was announced. Dan Mullen was out on the floor firing up the crowd and obviously uh, playing to recruits a little bit as well. That's certainly part of it this time of year. Scott, I know that, that you were there tracking his every move. Uh, what was Dan Mullen's message to the fans and what does it mean about the state of recruiting that they're in at the moment? Well, he is busy and his staff, you know, heading towards that uh, national signing day next month. And uh, Dan Mullen, I thought it was a nice gesture on his part to, uh, you know, Come across the street before the Tennessee game, and a great crowd was there, and a great atmosphere. And he kind of got things a, a little extra charged up by starting off by just thanking the fans. And uh, part of that is, you know, he's come in and he's he's you know all these coaches develop some kind of mantra uh, when they take over. His has kind of been reestablishing the Gator standard, and, and he thanked them because uh, the fans bought into it like the team did. And what he meant by that, Adam, was just that, you know, they, they came out to support the, the team. Uh, they got behind just the improvement. You know, it, it was a little up and down at some points in the year, as it always is. But really, the, the way the final month was and the bowl win over Michigan, you could you could just sense that the, uh, the Gator Nation was excited about the way things ended. And they're excited about the way things are heading and in terms of year one. I don't know if Dan Mullen could have asked for things to go much better in just the way that the, he was able to turn around the product on the field and the way the fans got excited about Florida football again. And we've talked about it before on this show. It was fun. It was probably the the most fun it's been around the, the Gators football program in a while. And I think the brand of football that Dan Mullen is known for, I think it really started to show over the final four games, uh, whether that's in terms of Felipe Frank's development, or the offensive numbers, you just saw what he was able to do. Uh, and that's why people are excited. And he just wanted to say thanks. And, and you said it was also part of a recruiting weekend. I mean, it was a chance to bring some of those recruits over across the street and show what kind of atmosphere they have at the O-Dome on big game days. 
Well, it's also transfer season. That's another big part of this time of year. And you see a lot of people with their infographics. As you noted last week, Scott, everyone's got a graphic now. If you're going to the draft, you have a graphic. If you're staying in school, you have a graphic. And if you transfer, you get a graphic as well. And Florida got a a pretty impactful one last week. So tell us about John Greenard and and what he can bring to the table. Well, a guy who was really good at Louisville in 2017 led the team up there with seven and a half sacks, uh, Broke his wrist uh, last season and ended up not playing. And obviously with what happened at Louisville, I mean, the season spiraled out of control. A uh, very disappointing year for them. Bobby Petrino got fired. And I think for him, it's just a chance to start fresh. And obviously the connection with Gators defensive coordinator Todd Grantham proved huge because, you know, Grantham was part of his recruitment at Louisville. Uh, he's from Hiram, Georgia. So, He's a Southern kid who decided to go up to Louisville and play and had a couple of good seasons up there. Uh, missed last season, and I haven't had a chance to meet him yet, but uh, from a talking to a couple of people in the football program this week, he's around in class. And When you look at these kind of signings, Adam, uh, one thing that you know to bring a guy in like him with, with the momentum that they built, there's obviously need in that they're losing C.C. Jefferson and Ja'Kai Polite. So there's a chance for him to, to come in right away, an experienced player, a veteran guy, and be productive on the field because he's been productive at this level before. And he's, uh, you know, he's going to be motivated with uh, coming off an injury. But also it's really important for a good fit because the Gators, as we mentioned, they finished with really good momentum. The, the chemistry seems good. So you don't want to bring a guy in that might disrupt that. So I'm sure having Ty Grantham there and just – haven't talked to a couple people who met him this week. They said he reminded him a little bit personality-wise of Malik Zaire, who came in a couple of years ago in a similar situation. Didn't necessarily work out on the field, but if you talk to people around the team, I mean, Malik Zaire was a great kid, good team guy, uh, had a great personality, did all the right things. And I think that's very important when you bring these kind of players on. And, and you know, they're looking uh, for help there. So you can throw him into the mix there with guys like Antonius Clayton, Zachary Carter, Jeremiah Moon, guys who will be back who don't necessarily have that experience. This is a guy who can, uh, you know, kind of uh, add a competitive mixture to that young group and also help lead the way. And we'll talk more football, of course, as we go along. Signing day gets closer. The second signing day, uh, Florida keeps getting some commitments. They're moving up those rankings. So certainly that momentum is is being seen. And we'll talk more about that when the uh, the dotted line is signed. Uh, right now, I want to turn our attention to women's basketball. It's not something we've talked about a lot this year. They've obviously had a, a difficult season so far, but a definite high point was this past weekend, Scott, at home against Missouri, a game that they looked almost certainly like they were going to lose and then staged an incredible comeback late in the action that uh, really gave them the, their first jolt of energy this season. That was the biggest win since Cam Newbauer's uh been of the coach, you know, he's second year. It's been obviously a rebuilding job that when he came in and took over the program, I think more so than probably he even expected. I think, you know, being at Florida, he thought maybe the talent on the roster uh, was going to be a little better than he inherited. Uh, he's had to do a lot of work on the chemistry, has rebuilt the roster, and and finally started to see some rewards. I went out there last week, Adam, and talked to him before the South Carolina game. And his really, I think, thing that he finally was starting to see a little light ahead because 
you know, he's 15 and 30 in his first 45 games. And that was a lot of the culture change, a lot of uh, transition through that phase. So they go up to face South Carolina and get thumped. Then they come home and get to play a, what, 14 and 2 Missouri team. Uh, you kind of expect them to lose that one too. And Delisha Washington hits a shot there at the end. Uh, that gives them, like I said, the biggest win that Cam's had as a coach. And what I took out of that is they did it in a little different way. I mean, it's really been a team that's had to rely so much on Delisha Washington and Funda Nakasaglu, their two veteran guards. I mean, they, they account for about 60% of the team's scoring. So going back to the Missouri game, well, Nakasaglu only had two points. Uh, they had some help from uh, Daniel Rainey, had 16 points off the bench. Zeta Williams, a transfer from Miami, chipped in in double digits. And obviously Washington hit the biggest shot at the end of the end of the game to give him a two-point win. And, and like as you said, it gave him a little jolt of energy because it's not going to get any easier for this group. They, they have a trip to Ole Miss and they have Mississippi State, you know, another SEC power along with South Carolina coming to the O-Dome next week. Uh, so, you know, we'll see what that means in the big picture. They're 5-12, and 12, can finally feel good that they beat a good team. Uh, you know, I'm not expecting this to spark any kind of uh, great turnaround to maybe to turn them. But, you know, you just never know. A team gets a little bit of confidence. It can add uh, to some wins and maybe uh, lose some of these losses that they've had to deal with where they've hung with teams like Auburn and Alabama. Uh, you kind of like to maybe face those kind of teams later in the year when you when you get your footing. Uh, but maybe now that they've got that win, they'll find that footing and, and start winning a couple of these games. I think you had to look at his first season, uh, Adam, as a transition season. Obviously, last year, I think this season over there and being being in the building a lot like I am, I think this is what you may want to refer to as a culture season. Mm. They're changing th- the way things, the way they do things, the way. Uh, across the board in the program, like inside the walls of how they do things on a day-to-day basis. And uh, it, for that to happen, obviously there's, there's been some attrition and some of the, some of the new people who have come in have been culture people. There's a very good, if you follow that stuff, very good, uh, uh, promising group of young ladies coming in in a recruiting class next year, which will further that process. So uh, when you get a win like like that one coming from 10 points down in the last few minutes. Uh, I don't think anyone in the building probably expected that. I'm not sure Cam Neubauer would ever say he expected something like that to happen, but culture win for a program and something of a, of a culture changing, uh, culture advancing season. So yeah, well said on women's basketball, certainly trying to turn that around and that's a, a good brick in that process. I want to move on to our PAT now. I find this really intriguing. I've been talking to a lot of people about this throughout the week. I know this is a, a really hot topic in the sports world in general, so curious for you guys to weigh in on it. But everyone's talking about Kyler Murray right now. Uh, it seems strange over the course of the year that the Oakland A's would let their $5 million investment go play college football. Although, I guess because it was in the Big 12, they figured if there's no defense, he probably won't get hit, but that's another story. Now he's being swayed by football. The question is, if you were advising Kyler Murray, what would you tell him to do right now? I mean, if I was advising him, I'm telling him to go with his heart. I mean, I'm going to talk like a parent here for a second. Uh, Obviously, he's a great talent, remarkable what he did in football this season, maybe to the surprise of, like you said, the Oakland A's. I was trying to think of who the last 
Because we, who are some other famous guys have been in this situation? Bo Jackson, but it didn't come until later. Dion was later. There's been some guys straight out of college. John Elway was a great example. He was a, a really good baseball prospect. Hmm. And obviously, I think he made the right decision to go into the NFL. <laughs> Danny Ainge is another guy who was a great baseball prospect. Played a couple of years of professionally in the uh, Blue Jays organization, but obviously with the basketball, it worked out well for him. Kyler Murray's story, we're not, we don't know how it's going to turn out, but I think in these situations, I mean, either one is almost a win-win. You, you go into the NFL, if you're going to be a number one pick like they're talking about, you're going to get paid very well. Financially, baseball, he's already got a nice bonus. And if you make the major leagues, as, as most would expect he does, I mean, Baseball money over the long term is usually going to be better than the NFL for players, unless you're that marquee quarterback like he could be. Hmm. It's really what he wants to do personally, uh, what he thinks best for him. Talent-wise, it seems to me like he's more proven at this point as a football commodity. Of course, we all seen uh, Heisman Trophy winning quarterbacks go on to the NFL and not pan out. Uh, Andre Ware, Dino Toretta. Chris Winky, Chris Winky, <laughs> Tim Tebow. You know, it's not a guarantee, <laughs> yeah, guarantee that those guys are going to be star quarterbacks in the NFL. And obviously, he's not a huge guy. Uh, maybe he'd have a hard time uh, adjusting to some of the physicality in the NFL. But again, it's really going to be up to him. He can't go wrong in terms of opportunity. And of course, we live in a time where injuries talked about. Mm-hmm. You go into baseball, you have a lot less chance to get injured. And again, like I mentioned earlier, baseball contracts are guaranteed. You sign a five-year, $50 million contract, you only play three years, you're still getting the $50 million. That's not the way it works in the NFL. So there's some more risk with injury in the NFL, but it's going to be interesting to see which way he goes and how it pans out long term. I haven't seen uh, Kyler Murray play baseball. I was looking at his, had his statistics, and I guess he had one really good year, and then the year before that, he wasn't very good at all. I also have not seen any um, quarterbacks in the NFL who are five nine and seven eights go into the National Football League and succeed. And that's what his uh, measurements were when when he checked in last year, uh, according to the SID department at uh, at Oklahoma. So obviously the guy is uh, lightning on bottle this year was 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 terrific. Some of those other quarterbacks you mentioned, uh, I mean. I, I, Remember Eric Crouch? He was another one who won the Heisman Trophy. He didn't get to play in the NFL very mm-hmm. much, if at all. You were trying to think about baseball and football players, and you mentioned Tim Tebow. He's he's done both, I think, hasn't he? Yeah. Not quite, yeah. Not quite at the highest level. I saw Deion Sanders thinks he should play baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, Deion Sanders being somebody who would would probably know better than that. But um, you know, Scott started the whole thing by saying, "Go with your heart." Yeah. Go with your heart, but also listen to your agent and make the most money that you can. I guess didn't the Oakland don't the Oakland A's already give him a five five million dollars? Five million bonus. So, so if he's the first pick in the draft, he's gonna he's gonna get his money as the first pick in the in, in the NFL draft on a rookie contract, and it's gonna be pretty hefty. It's not gonna be sicko money like Sam Bradford got back in the day sure. before they instituted the rookie the rookie uh, salary contracts. But uh, uh, there's some people around him that have to do some really special uh, due diligence 
over the next few months. And I, and he needs to listen to what some people are saying. Again, it, it only takes one to one to draft. You know, Cliff Kingsbury's there in Arizona. If he thinks Kyler Murray can be a quarterback, then they're going to tell him that. And that's likely what he's going to do. But again, uh, at that size, playing at that level, I would be skeptical. Um, I'm certainly not saying it can't be done because the NFL is changing, as we all know. Ten years ago is different than how it looks now, and it's going to change even more as these offenses get more wide open, more spread-oriented, and they let the quarterback run run as much as they do. But I imagine there would be a place in the NFL for Kyler Murray. I just don't know if it's a starting quarterback. It'll be fun to see. Yeah, it's it's intriguing, and uh, certainly there's a case for it. In the NFL, you're getting more money up front if you're one of those top picks, but the longevity you could have in baseball, much more significant. What's really unique about this is Major League Baseball actually was willing to waive a rule that does not allow you to give Major League contracts to draft picks. They they threw a bunch of money at Kyle Murray, and they offered him a Major League contract, and he still decided to enter the draft. So it certainly seems that his heart is in football right now. But Chris, you mentioned this. This is what I would go back to. Who has been in this situation? Who knows it best? When a guy like Deion Sanders says, I would tell him to pick up a baseball bat and never look back. To me, that should hold a lot of weight from someone who's been there and done that because there aren't a lot of people who've been in that position and done both. You know, this is a guy who's walked away with the Heisman Trophy, played in these full, you know, these full stadiums and what have you. All right, is he a guy who wants to ride on a bus for right. the next three years? There's something to be said about that too. Yeah. And whereas in the NFL, he's probably going to be starting at some time next season if he's the first pick in the draft or if he's a. If, if, if he's picked in the NFL next year in the first round. So uh, uh, I, I do think a person like Deion Sanders, what he has to say carries some weight. But again, he was, he, he was in the NFL 15 years ago and what have you. But uh, the game has changed and uh, guys like Kyler Murray are, are, are the ones changing the game. It is fascinating. We'll certainly continue to follow that. I know all sports fans are. And uh, in the meantime, Chris, you'll be following basketball and you'll have him this weekend where fans can check it out as they head to Georgia. Follow Chris at Gators Chris. Everything to be posted up on FloridaGators.com. Gentlemen, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Uh, thanks, Adam. See you, Adam. Winning three straight national championships creates a roster stacked with multiple classes that know what it takes to get to the top. But what happens when the last remnants of that era disappear? That's the challenge for gymnastics coach Jenny Rowland, who just graduated a large senior class that represented the last tie to the epic title run from 2013 to 2015. Having arrived shortly after that in 2016, Jenny Rowland is beginning her fourth year at the helm and has a young but incredibly talented team that started the year with a sterling performance at home in front of a packed house. We spoke to her about this year's squad and the challenges they face, but began by asking what impressed her most about that opening number. I think what pleased me the most is that we have a very a very new team compared to the last two years here. Uh, six freshmen on the team, and uh, really a lot of those players, we, we used uh, routines throughout all the events. Um, and to see how the team was together out on the competition floor and uh, to see them perform the way that they did resembled uh, what we've been seeing in the in practice and training. 
and to carry over from training out onto the competition floor. There's emotions that get in the way, nerves and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really great to see how calm, um, how confident and how normal um, everybody looked and um, how everybody was just confident in, in each other's routine and uh, performances and events and, and just how, how fluid the meet went. And I'm sure from a, a training perspective, it's a little bit different as well when you've got over 8,000 people that are screaming and yelling for you, especially for some of those younger performers. So having crowds like that, can you just talk about the impact that has both the positives and also some of the ways that you have to maybe account for it being a distraction in, in, in some ways? Sure. Um, it's something that we talk about as a team a lot in the gym. We can only simulate so much, but a crowd of um, 8,000 plus people is not one that we can simulate. Uh, we can turn the music up real loud and have <laughs> the team yelling, you know, to the best of their ability, but it, there's no comparison uh, to what uh, a real life meet is like. Um, but really, we also we we've been talking a lot about uh, taking what you need and you. Yes, you hear that crowd. And do you really need to feed off of it? If you don't just shut it off and just try to get in your bubble and focus on what you've been doing on a day to day basis. Uh, if you need a little bit of that, you know, let it in let it pump you up, let it get you going and uh, let it feed you. So really just having the ability to um, take the um, the crowd as a positive and using it to a positive, whether you need it or not, is an important uh, tool to have, uh, I'd say, in your toolbox. And uh, the athletes uh, on the competition floor that night did a really nice job of utilizing that. You could tell first event out, there was a, a, a little a little more juice flowing, mm-hmm. a little too much sauce, you know, <laughs> but that's all right. Um, I, I never mind uh, an aggressive performance over a, a timid performance. So it was, it was great to see. When you've been in this sport for a long time, you've seen tons of different performers. I'm curious, based on what you just said, do you find that most gymnasts do feed off that energy and it elevates them or do more of them shut it out and try and simulate a practice where you don't have those other factors? Um, I'd say they definitely feed off of it. Um, but a lot of them are, they're used to competing in large, in front of large crowds, maybe not, uh, the rowdy crowds Mm -hmm. or the loud crowds. Um, so it's not like they're not used to a lot of people, but um, the noise and the energy flowing is, is a little bit different. Um, so I'd say they, they did a really good job of, you know, just ignoring it. And really, it's, it's a person, it's an individual, you know, need. Some need it, some don't. And I, I think everybody handled it very well. Change is inevitable in college athletics, and you talk about your youth. The reason partly that you have so much youth is because you just graduated a ton of experience, such an impactful and a, a huge, huge class that you had. How do you account for losing the production and the leadership that that senior class brought for you in the last year? You're always going to lose leadership um, after you graduate a, a large class. And uh, this year definitely was, you know, no different than any other year. But it forces others to step into roles that um, they didn't know they were able to handle. And uh, that's the beauty of college. That's, you know, the beauty of 
sport. And um, it's something that I really enjoy as a coach myself is being able to witness that and to see the growth, you know, not only in gymnastics, but as a person, um, which can carry, you know, on throughout the rest of their life. So, yes, we did. We lost a lot of leadership, but um, I truly believe that everybody on the team is a leader within themselves. Um, some are leaders by example. Some are outgoing leaders. Some are great leaders by they're, they're able to just be transparent and listen and help. Really, the, the team has done a, a very good job identifying their talents and roles and uh, utilizing that. And I really think that was a, a a reason to the successful start of the season. This program is not too far removed from those back-to-back-to-back national championships. And the senior class we're talking about, they were the last tie to that title run. So I'm curious, do you see a difference when you have a team that doesn't necessarily have individuals who've hoisted that national championship trophy? Is there a different drive? Is there a different hunger in, in any way? I would say this team... Even though none of them had hoisted that trophy up, um, that hunger is is there. Um, there. There is no difference. I have a, a team filled with a lot of competitors. They don't like to lose. <laughs> they like to compete. And I think the beauty of this team is that we have depth this year. Um, and the intensity level has elevated a little bit in the gym because everybody wants to play. Everybody wants to compete. So, you know, they've been pushing themselves, which in turn pushes their teammate, which in turn, you know, makes us a better team. Um, So I think that hunger to compete itself really has uh, created uh, this team to be set up for a very successful year. Before we talk a little bit more about this team, one more question about someone who you lost, and that's Alex McMurtry, who will go down as one of the greatest athletes in the history of Florida athletics. There's no question. When you look at her career and what she accomplished, what made her so special as a competitor? And then how do you how do you find that in other gymnasts as well? Um, really, I think what made her so special was she was very comfortable just being herself. Um, she was a very humble, a very loyal, a very dedicated young lady, um, not only in the gym, but uh, outside of the gym as well, and had a great balance of life. She has a drive of in life itself to, you know, become a, a physician's assistant. And she was determined to do the best that she could in every area. And um, it's a quality that many gymnasts have. Um, hers was just a little, a little more elevated, I'd say, you know, compared to some. And uh, she made the most of it and knew that she had opportunities presented in front of her and really maximized them and did everything she can to be the very best she could be in any way, whether it was a good teammate or a team player or competitor or a student. Um, So I think um, that's, that's really what separated her from others. I want to bring things back to this year's team and that freshman class that we've talked about already. Number one ranked group in the country, Can you tell us about these new gymnasts and what they each bring to the squad? Uh, I think what's awesome that they bring to the squad is that um, they're all very different in their own way. Uh, We have some uh, student athletes who are super powerful. We have some grace. We have some combination of both. 
personalities. I mean, you've got a wide range of personalities, but that's really what, uh, in essence, makes up makes up a great team. Um, being able to accept each other, you know, play off of each other is really important. But these uh, freshmen, really, uh, their talent level is incredibly high. They've got a great work ethic and really just coming into the collegiate scene and learning the ways of college gymnastics versus what they're used to. Um, they, they did a very, very good job uh, coming into the gym and, you know, stepping right in, letting those uh, upperclassmen, you know, show them the way they're open to learning, they're open to listening. And uh, they've just, they've done a great job. And uh, the competition floor is no different. Uh, first meet out, there were a, a few little jitters that, you know, I noticed, but, you know, nothing that's uh, not going to settle down uh, with in due time and really just being comfortable with themselves and comfortable with their teammates and trusting each other is, is really going to go a long way. You mentioned some of the, the differences and the, the adjustments for gymnasts coming into college and how that landscape's a little bit different. I just think about someone like Trinity Thomas, who's been with the senior USA gymnastics team competing internationally. And, and I wonder what are the differences between competing in college gymnastics as opposed to some of these international competitions that your gymnasts would be used to? I'd probably say one of the biggest differences um, competing for the USA, you come together once a month for training camps um, and you train alongside somebody for a couple days, maybe a week, a month, maybe. Um, and you go compete for that country um, and for that person to your side. When you're at the collegiate level, you have daily experiences with your teammates who become close sisters very quickly, you know, going through similar experiences day in and day out and just that bond emotionally and everything else attached really just you're you're a little more transparent and um, I think that competing for your university alongside your sisters who you've been through morning workouts and tough trainings mm -hmm. you know and and tests and you know and really who you are today is in what you've gone through to get there it's just a lot more meaningful um, and um, I know that uh, this freshman class is, is a great testament to that. So many of the teams that make it to national championships come from the SEC. How critical is it to have that bar to compare yourself against when you have meets against some of these fellow Titans week in and, and week out? I think it's actually a great advantage for the SEC in general. We don't get a weekend off um, that we have a an easier team. You have to be on your toes every week. So by the time you get to postseason, um, it's no different and you don't have to make it more meaningful or make it more of anything you're, you're already used to. It's, it's another competition. You've been through it all season long. And so I, I really think it's, it's helpful for us. Um, and knowing that, um, we, you've got to be on point every weekend. In the regular season, especially, I always wonder about this. To what extent are you competing against your opponent as opposed to competing against yourself? When you're not in a situation like you're at national championships or SEC championships where there's a trophy at the end of the tunnel? Really, for our sport, I'd say it all boils down to beating yourself. We are a team out on the competition floor, but each person at one time has to do what they've been training to do. And um, being 
a former gymnast and knowing the mentality a lot of a lot of these gymnasts, you know, they they have that type A personality that, you know, they've got to be perfect. And finding that balance and trusting yourself and not putting so much pressure on yourself to over exceed um, is is always a challenge. But uh, I'd say it definitely, you know, boils down to um, not beating yourself up. Couple final questions for you. You're going to LSU this week. What are you hoping to see from your team in both your second meet? So obviously looking for a jump there, but also being your first one on the road where it's a little bit different than, than what you've become accustomed to. Sure. Really um, just going out there and seeing that same camaraderie, that same calmness um, within the warmups, within the competition, they are calm and having fun and really enjoying what they're doing they're they're going to put on a great show and uh looking forward to just seeing that confidence continue to rise throughout the season final thing for you there's a a viral moment this week has been the ucla gymnastics floor routine that everyone's talking about i think it was on the today show this morning uh in addition to being a coach you're also an accomplished judge i'm curious if you can break down that routine for us, was that a 10 in your book? Because you, you see a lot of 10s. Was that a 10 in your book? Absolutely. Um, if you see the performance, if you see the joy on her face, and really you see what it did to highlight uh, such an amazing sport throughout the country, in my opinion, the best sport in the world. And uh, a lot of people may not completely understand it, but you can watch that floor routine and really get a sense of happiness, a sense of joy. And you can tell that she's really having the time of her life. And that's something that um, that's why I am in the position that I am. Um, I love to be at the collegiate level and uh, get to witness great gymnastics and as well as these uh, incredibly talented young ladies having the time of, of their life. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for your time. Good luck to you as you move through the season, and uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Go Gators. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to follow gymnastics as they compete against LSU on Friday night at 9 on the SEC Network, while men's basketball heads to Athens to face the Bulldogs Saturday at noon on CBS. We'll be back next week to break it all down, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, thanking you for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.